Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Pharos rises at the end of the island. The building is square, about 45 steps wide on each side. The sea surrounds the Pharos, except on the east and south sides. This platform measures along its sides, from the tip down to the foot of the Pharos wall, six meters in height. However, on the side facing the sea, it is larger because of the construction and is steeply inclined like the side of a mountain. The doorway to the Pharos is high up. A ramp about 68 meters long used to lead up to it. This ramp rests on a series of curved arches. My companion got beneath one of the arches and stretched out his arms, but he was not able to reach the sides. There are 16 of these arches, each gradually getting higher until the doorway is reached, the last one being especially high. Eventually, we reached the first stage of the Pharos. There was no stairway inside, but a ramp that gradually ascended around the cylindrical core of this huge building. We entered a corridor seven hand spans wide, overhung with finished stones that formed a ceiling. When we arrived at the top of the first stage, we measured its height from the ground with a piece of string from which we hung a stone. It was roughly 60 meters the parapet being about two meters high. In the middle of the platform of this first stage, the building continued upwards, but now in the shape of an octagon, with each face ten steps long and fifteen spans from the parapet. The wall was about two meters thick. This stage was taller than its baseline. Entering, we found a staircase, which we counted as having eighteen steps, and arrived at the middle of the upper floor, in the center of this platform, on top of the second stage, the building continued upwards in cylindrical form with a diameter of 40 steps. We entered again and climbed 31 steps to arrive at the third stage. On the platform of the third stage, there is a mosque built with four doors 
and a cupola. In summary, the structure that we had explored had 67 rooms, except for the first, which we found closed, and which, it was said, led underground to the sea. Those were excerpts from the most detailed description we have for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, also known as the Pharos. This description was written by a 12th century Arab scholar called Muhammad el-Balawi, who explored the lighthouse when he visited Alexandria. Because that's right, this lighthouse endured for more than a millennium, and over its long history, it experienced evolutions and upgrades to its design, overlooking the harbour entrance to this great Mediterranean metropolis. It was one of the tallest man-made structures constructed in ancient history. And this gigantic lighthouse is the focus of our episode today. We are interviewing Professor Michael Higgins from the University of Quebec. Now, Michael's background is geology, but he has recently written a new book exploring the science, engineering and technology of the ancient wonders, which naturally includes the lighthouse. This was a really interesting chat where we not only cover the history of this wonder, but we also delve into Michael's geologist expertise to understand the importance of the terrain upon which this lighthouse was placed that is so crucial to its story. I really do hope you enjoy, and here's Michael. Michael, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> well, and we are talking about another of these wonders of the ancient Hellenistic world, the Lighthouse of Alexandria. And this is the only one of the seven wonders that actually served a practical purpose. Yes, it stands out for that. And it also stands out that it's the last one to be added to the list of the seven wonders. The very earliest lists are rewarded Babylon with two wonders, the walls and the gardens. And later on, the, uh, the forest was substituted in for the walls of Babylon. The curious thing is, of course, that some of the people who were writing about the Seven Wonders were actually in Alexandria and just next door to the Pharos. I think that it was perhaps because of its practicality that people didn't look at it so highly as the other ones. It wasn't a tomb, it wasn't a monument to a god or anything like that. Or maybe because they're living there, they didn't appreciate it exactly. as much as someone being elsewhere. Yes, we never appreciate the things that are next door to us. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. It just talks to me in like Trafalgar Square or something like that, somewhere I don't go enough uh, in London. And in regards to this almost being an added on later to the list of the Seven Wonders, this is also a structure that is, it's built and rebuilt at several times during its lifetime. Yes, the lifetime of it was 1,500 years, 1,600 years. And very often people search for the definitive image of it, the definitive description, which there wasn't because it changed all the time. It fell down, it was rebuilt, it fell down again. It went through many, many cycles. And we, of course, don't have that much information on every single rebuilding. We can just, at specific times, we can have an idea of what it possibly looked like. Well, well, we'll go through these various different construction phases of the lighthouse, but let's go back to the very beginning. So, Michael, talk to me about the story behind its first construction. Well, I suppose one should start the story with, with Alexander. Who, uh, Alexander the Great, of course. I Alexander think. the Great, yes. <laughs> well, I'm not sure he was great you if you happened right. to be conquered by him. <laughs> he breezed through 
in uh, 332 and decided it was a suitable spot for an important city. But it was easy to choose because it had a harbor. And it was not really, nothing really happened there until Ptolemy took over after the death of Alexander. Even then, it took some time after that before the forest was constructed. But the need for it must have been clear from the very start that although it's a very nice harbor, it's the only harbor for almost 900 kilometers along the coast. The coast is extremely low with a series of sandbanks and it's extremely treacherous and very difficult to work out where you are. So you needed a beacon to guide people into that harbour. And this time you mentioned the word Ptolemy, so the successor of Alexander the Great in Egypt following Alexander's death. Alexandria, it's still a very young city at this time. But when we go into building the lighthouse in the 3rd century BC, we've mentioned the name Ptolemy, but who actually oversaw its construction? Ah, well, well, that has been handed down, even if we don't have much other information. And it's a guy called Sostratus. And he is listed as an architect or a builder or a financer. But I think it's probably the wrong way of looking at it. You have to think of it, of Ptolemy as an autocrat, like a modern political autocrat, like Putin or somebody like that. And around him were wealthy people. And they could spend their money, provided it was spent in the right direction on some things. So I think that Sostratos was, he was able to profit from his relationship with Ptolemy. But as payment, he had to build something. (laughs) And obviously, the lighthouse was the thing that he did. So Sostratos has almost got this permit to build the lighthouse in Alexandria. But if you were Sostratos at that time, because I know that your background is in geology and the earth sciences and looking at the lay of the land and so on. What would Sostratos have seen? What's the geographical topography of this area that he selects for the lighthouse? Well, the geography of the area around Alexandria is a series of ridges. Although along much of the southern and eastern Mediterranean coast, there is a single ridge. It's not particularly high, maybe 30, 40 meters high, just in from the coast. In Alexandria, there are a series of eight of these ridges which go up inland as you go further south, and they rise up and up and up. And In an area like this, which is prone to flooding because we're very close to the Nile, you ideally want to be able to build on higher land so that during the Nile floods, you won't be affected by the floods. So there was one ridge in which was dissected. It probably was not ever a continuous ridge. And the Faros Island, where the Faros was constructed, was part of this ridge which went along next to the uh, ocean. And then further inland, about a kilometre or so, there was another ridge. And this ridge was where Alexandria was built. And then there are another six ridges further back. And this is extremely unusual for this part of the world. But it gives you the right geography. You have access to the Nile, but you don't have the problem with flooding. It's so interesting because sometimes we talk about Rome as being the city on seven hills. Alexandria and the Pharos, it's the story of the city and its lighthouse on two ridges then. Exactly, on two ridges, yes, yes. So these ridges, their origin is a bit strange. It's, uh, no geologists seem to be able to give quite the same story, but the general feeling is that they're related to glacial cycles. As many people know, we have just come out of a glaciation 20,000 years ago was the 
coldest period of time. And at that time, sea level was 120 meters below the current sea level. So along the coast there were vast flats which went right out into the Mediterranean. But before that, there was a cycle of warmth and higher sea level. So when the sea level is high, it's thought that the wind blows the sand up from the beach and makes a, what's called a storm berm. So it's a, a ridge just above the high tide level. And anybody who's walked on a beach can often see one of these storm ridges. And then during the glacial cycle, when it was cold, the beach became incredibly wide and the wind blew the shelly sand up onto this ridge and deposited and built it up higher. And that's why these ridges are higher than you would expect them to be. It's fascinating to have a look at one of the wonders through this geological lens because it, it gives you a bit more of an understanding why of all places this island, Faros Island, is chosen to be the basis, the foundation for this lighthouse. It is, as you say, it is higher up, it is less susceptible to be pushed over almost by erosion? Yes, it's actually a slab of limestone that's floating on sand. And it's somewhat more resistant to erosion. It's, it stands up. It's, it's the place you want to build it. And the other advantage is, of course, you have a supply of raw material to actually build the lighthouse. This same rock, which makes up the island itself, can be or was quarried to build the lighthouse itself. So let's talk, therefore, about this initial construction. Do we have any thoughts or ideas, therefore? You mentioned this local limestone. I mean, can we start to put together a picture of how this Ptolemaic first pharos looked? We have no real descriptions of the first pharos. All we can do is assume that the later pharoses, the bottom, the basal part of the pharos, stayed the same all the time through history. So, but the, probably the lower part of the pharos was the original tower. I like to think of it more as a beacon than a lighthouse. And I think one of the models perhaps for the Sostratus followed with his design was the pylons, the monumental gateways in front of many uh, Egyptian temples. For instance, at Karnak. Karnak, yeah. Exactly, is the, is the classic one. And these monumental gateways consist of very large towers, 30 meters wide, 30, 40 meters high, and they taper slightly upwards. There's usually two on either side. And then in between them, there is a monumental gateway, not necessarily with a gate, but it'll be a very, very large gateway. And I think the original Faros was based on that in a way. They took the two parts of the pylon and essentially piled one on top of the other and put the monumental gateway in the base of the whole structure. So we end up with a structure about 30 meters square at the bottom. It tapers slightly upwards and it's 70 or 80 meters high. And then in the base, there is this monumental gateway. And we know the dimensions of this model gateway because there are remains of the granite slabs which were used to make the gateway. I don't think it was ever closed with a door. I rather think it was a bit perhaps like the false doors in the pyramids or the tombs. It was essentially a decorative element. And there was actually a real door elsewhere, <laughs> which was used in, in more human dimensions. I mean, this monumental gateway was probably 13 meters high. 
And you can't imagine producing a gate you could open, which is 13 metres high. It's an absolutely amazing achievement by Sostratus and those who constructed it. You mentioned granite there, the material granite. Was this also locally acquired or from further away? The granite came from Aswan. Right. So that's, uh, okay. what, a thousand kilometres further south. And it was floated down the Nile. And the Egyptians had a lot of experience with working with this granite. I mean, if you look at the pyramids, which are considerably older than this, there's a large amount of granite was used in them. So they were used to dealing, you know, quarrying the granite, shaping the granite in huge blocks. And so obviously they must have, they appear to have ordered that specifically for the construction. And then for the rest of the building, they essentially quarried this shelly limestone, which was essentially kind of almost like a fossilized beach on the ridge itself. Now, we don't, we know where the granite quarries are, but we don't know where the quarries are for the stone that was used to build the pharos. And it's almost certainly because they're now below sea level. That's part of the story that will come in later with the destruction, but basically the sea level has risen about seven meters since the original construction of the pharos. It is such an interesting contrast almost, isn't it? When you look at the building material of the pharos, where you have the local stone and then this very highly rated granite being brought in from very far away, very traditional as well, very historic materials that have been used in the pyramids. It is fascinating how they're both brought together for the construction. Yes, they are. And, And the limestone that was used is a very soft limestone. People often think of limestone as being a hard rock and needing very hard tools, but they did cut it with bronze saws and iron chisels. It was relatively soft. The downside of that was that it was also readily eroded, but usually speed is what triumphs over longevity on construction. Absolutely. So Strassos was thinking for his lifetime, wasn't he there? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I think he wanted it to be finished. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I mean, do we know what might have been on top of this lighthouse too? Well, first of all, I think we should say a little bit about what we think is was inside. Let's the, do it. Absolutely. Okay. It appears that the, when they were building it, they built in a ramp inside the pharos, some kind of spiral ramp, which were tied up to the top. And that can't have been anything that was added in later. It's got to have been something in the original construction. So they obviously felt they needed access to the top. And that was built in with the, with the original construction, original design. So it appears that it, it basically tapered upwards. There was, I think, a flat top, but on that there was some kind of plinth. And then there's evidence that there was a, a monumental statue of Zeus, Zeus Sota, which is Zeus the savior on it. Now, whether they had hearths up there for signaling fires is unclear, but I think it's very likely that the ramp was put in so that they could take material up to that platform to burn as a light source. But I don't think it was ever done. I think it was just done for ceremonial occasions. I don't think it was done on a regular basis. One thing one should remember at that time was that they didn't sail at night. They only sailed during the day. So they needed actually a beacon, some kind of tower to be able to locate, but they didn't particularly need a light on it. It was only in Roman times they needed a light because of congestion. From the remains of the pharos in the waters around in the harbour itself, we find a lot of statues or remains of statues. And so it was very likely that the original Ptolemaic pharos actually had a temple beside it, probably dedicated to Isis, 
probably essentially furnished with statues that were recycled or stolen, whichever way you look at it, from temples further south. Some of these were very large statues, in fact. But whether they were beside the pharos, whether they were part of the structure is unclear at this point. There you go. And do we also know, because of course they might have a temple beside the lighthouse and it's on an island. Do we know of any bridge or how they connected the pharos to the mainland? Yes, there was a causeway built called the Heptastadion, and that was just the length. The stadium was about 200 meters, so it was about 1.4 kilometers long. And it was essentially a causeway with bridges at either end, and it linked Faros Island to the mainland to the south. And one aspect, unforeseen aspect perhaps, of building this link was that it isolated the bay into two harbours and it uh, very soon became silted up with beaches on either side of this causeway. Although they put in bridges to try and keep a little bit of flow through so that the harbour wouldn't uh, silt up. But modern Alexandria, of course, is mostly built on this, on this isthmus, which is entirely artificial. Well, it's so interesting that you've described this first pharos in the Ptolemaic period because Although you've got the granite coming from very far away and it's still a massive construction, this beacon, it still sounds, dare I say, I'm probably wrong, but, but quite simple. It doesn't feel, at this stage at least, a world wonder yet, does it? No, I don't think so. I think it's regarded as something pr- practical, industrial, all the rest of it. Now, later on, I think it became more elaborate, but it certainly it had the statue of Zeus on the top. I think that's fairly clear, whether it was... At the very earliest stage, whether that was put on 1,500 years later, we don't really know. Well, I jumped the gun earlier saying let's go to Roman times, but now let's go to Roman times (laughs) and how it evolves. Because Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Octavian, Egypt is now no longer in Ptolemaic control. It's now in Roman control following 30 BC. How do we see the Pharos evolve during this next period of occupation, the time of the Romans in Alexandria? Well, the Romans viewed Egypt as their granary. So they needed grain from Egypt to feed Rome, essentially. So they had a large increase in the number of boats and a large increase in the size of the boats. They had some really very large boats coming in. And they needed basically extra capacity in the harbour itself. There was actually congestion during the season. And so that they ended up having to sail at night. And so possibly at this time, the pharos was slightly extended and a light was installed. Now, we know a little bit more about what the pharos looked like at this stage. Strabo doesn't exactly give us a lot of information, but he says it has several... St- several floors, several stories, and it's white. (laughs) So the white bit implies to me that it was covered in stucco and that they were probably putting stucco on it to repair the uh, stonework, which had been eroded. What do you mean by stucco? Stucco is essentially whitewash. So you burn lime, you spread it on, and it makes a kind of weak cement. So it waterproofs and stabilizes the surface. Because this limestone is extremely porous and extremely easily eroded. So you have to basically maintain it the whole time. And this would perhaps be a way of doing it. We also know a little bit about what it looks like from Roman coins. Coins are kind of interesting because they were often, I think, 
they had the attractions of the town put on it because they were made nice little souvenirs um, and people were proud of, of it. So we have a number of coins which show the Roman pharos and they seem to be fairly consistent. It has the square base with the gateway, which we've seen before. It has a second story, which is maybe cylindrical, maybe octagonal, we don't know, about a quarter of the height and about half the diameter. Then on top of that, there appears to be a circle of columns with a roof on top of that and a statue. And the statue now is usually attributed to Poseidon, but I wonder if it's the same statue as before. And it's Poseidon would be, to my mind, more logical than Zeus, because mm. Poseidon is obviously the god of the sea. I'm James Patton Rogers, a war historian, advisor to the UN and NATO, and host of the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. Join me twice a week, every week, as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future. We talk to award-winning journalists. ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. We hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labor. Join us on the Warfare Podcast from History it twice a week, every week, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All right, Ancients listeners, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. 
It's narrated by my fellow History Hit podcast host, John Wardman, and is direct audio from the hit TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. Now on Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find the objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. What I love about this podcast is that it's a deep dive into specific objects, revealing the amazing stories they can tell about a person, about a place, or a time in history. It's the detail and laser focus that really resonates with me. Listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think these multiple stories, you know, many of these new stories that you see in these Roman coins are added at this time because of that reason that you mentioned earlier, because there is this increase in traffic? And I really find that interesting that there is an increase in traffic because even in Ptolemaic times, Alexandria was this great center with connections across the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. But it feels like it almost goes to a new level in Roman oh, times. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was, it was huge at this point. I mean, I think some of the grain ships were up to a thousand tons. Wow. I mean, they were huge. We only needed to lose one or two grain ships to, to make the whole thing worthwhile. <laughs> and I think in regards to visual depictions, I've got it in my notes here, and this is something that I remember chatting to an interviewee about quite some time ago, Lauren Morris, and she highlighted how you have another depiction in the Begrim Horde. Yes. In Afghanistan. Yes. I think it's called the Pharos Vase. Yes, the Pharos Vase is quite interesting because it shows the same components as the Roman coins, except that the statue is rather large. Oh, something I should have, I forgot to mention with the Roman coins is the tritons. On the Roman coins, there's another component, which is at the edges of the lower story of the base, there are tritons. And the tritons are kind of portrayed as mermen with a curly tail and a top. They're kind of semi-divine spirit creatures. But they are clearly put on the Roman coins, so they were clearly something that people always remembered and remarked on. So fascinating, isn't it? And perhaps maybe there was art decoration showing these tritons on the original pharos as well at the time, which kind of gives that link. Who knows whether they were there in the original. But uh, I like to think of the original one as being more essentially Egyptian in its simplicity, although there was a statue on the top. <laughs> We're talking about another depiction quickly if we head east, because I remember doing an interview about this some time ago with Lauren Morris. We were talking about the Begrim Horde in Monday, Afghanistan. But it was fascinating because amidst the many remarkable objects discovered there, you have this depiction of what we believe is the Pharos of Alexandria on the Pharos Vase too. Yes, it is. And and it has all the components of the of the Roman coins. It has the two stories, it has the tritons. It has the statue beside them on the top. The scale's a bit strange, but yes, it's a stunning piece, although I believe it does no longer exist. I haven't seen any pictures of it in modern day, I must admit, no, so maybe I think it doesn't. It's, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on then, let's focus on the inside of the lighthouse again with the Roman period, because you mentioned how maybe more of a beacon in the Ptolemaic period, but by the Roman period with this increase in traffic, there is need now for a light. I mean, talk to me about this light on the Roman Pharos. Okay. I, at this point, I think they needed to have a light on a kind of a more permanent basis. And by 
building a second story, they got up a little bit higher. They could people could see it from further away. What they were, what it was, I think was was probably a hearth, perhaps in the centre of those columns, protected by the roof from bad weather. Because obviously, the time you needed the light most was when the weather was bad in the winter. You didn't need it in the summer, particularly. So they would have probably burnt brush or small trees. One has to remember that Egypt is not a desert from end to end. Around Alexandria, it's a Mediterranean climate. It does have wet winters. Things do grow there, but probably not big trees. So I think they were burning brush. They were probably burning trash, essentially, old bits of boats and anything like that. And they might have been burning some bitumen as well. There certainly was trade in that. It may have been too valuable a material at that point, but it's certainly possible. The, the bitumen would have probably come from the Dead Sea, not from Mesopotamia, because uh, the main source at that time was uh, the Dead Sea. And so what's all of this about mirrors too? Well, there are descriptions that there were bronze mirrors used to to increase the light output. And obviously one possibility would be putting the mirrors on the landward side where you didn't need the light. Or another possibility would be to suspend the mirrors above the fire at a 45 degree angle, in which case they would then reflect the light out. But again, we know very little about it, except that there were probably mirrors used. Is that quite fascinating for you in your science background, trying to figure out the engineering, the maths, the science behind this structure, behind creating a lighthouse in ancient history? Yes, I mean, it's an incredible idea, the science of how to produce a light source. But it must have been envisaged in some ways from the very start by the construction of the ramp inside so that they could actually use, presumably, mules to drag fuel up to the top, or slaves. One or the other, indeed. We mustn't forget that point. Well, therefore, let's keep moving on in regard to the Roman occupation of Egypt. So this is more than 500 years do we know how the pharos fares over these centuries? Always the big question in the Mediterranean region is earthquakes. Now, in fact, the area around the pharos, Alexandria, and that part of Egypt, it has a very low incidence of earthquakes. But they're not, they do occur. And a greater problem is earthquakes further north, which produce tsunamis. There was one such earthquake, probably near Crete in 365 AD. And this earthquake produced a lot of effects on Crete, but we see the effects of the tsunami in Alexandria. And there were some 50,000 people killed. Oh, that is what, what is recorded. And it seems to have produced a great deal of destruction. But curiously enough, the pharos was not affected. And one possibility is that the pharos may have had a courtyard built around it with a wall. And the wall around the courtyard may have been essentially a part of the temple or a part of the decorative structure. Or it may have been there to protect the pharos from sea spray. But there is there are descriptions which include this uh, courtyard. And that courtyard may have protected the pharos from the tsunami, although it was obviously never designed to do that is simply by breaking the wave before it came in. Yes, it becomes almost an ancient wave break. And it's amazing yes. how it, it, it survives. 365, it's this infamous year in Alexandria's history. And yet the lighthouse stays standing. Exactly. Do you think that's also a testament? Of course, you have to this 
makeshift wave break. But I'm guessing also the quality of the foundation of the building of the lighthouse itself, because I'm presuming there would have been some water that would have still at least reached the wall. Oh, the water would have undoubtedly gone in. Yes, yes. But the foundations were were correct. And up until this point, we don't we think that sea level was at the same level as it was when it was constructed. Because later on, the whole island has sunk. And once, of course, an island sinks, then the sea becomes closer to the building. So what is this next phase then? We get to the Islamic phase, once the Roman conquest or the Roman occupation of Egypt comes to an end. Yes, exactly. So in 640, there was the Islamic conquest of Egypt. The Romans had been in decline for a while and the trade had been in decline. So it certainly changed in many ways the aspect of the pharaohs. It became from something that was to guide trade in. The trade still continued, but at a lower level, and I think became more of a symbol of the Islamic city itself. One big change, of course, with the coming of Islam was the uh, number of pilgrims who went to Mecca from western parts of the Islamic empire. And many of these visitors actually recorded aspects of the pharaohs. They wrote these down. There was quite a tradition of writing essentially a journal of one's Hajj. And these are written down and we have quite a large number of them, some of them extremely detailed. So what do they recall therefore about how the pharaohs looked at that time? Well, the best one is a guy called Al-Balawi, who was from southern Spain, which had a very strong intellectual history there. And Al-Balawi was kind of interesting because he was actually a builder. So he built mosques and he went on his uh, pilgrimage and recorded a lot of information about the buildings he went along just for his own personal interest. But he also had the skills to be able to describe them. And so for the uh, Faros, for his visit in 1165, he gave an extremely detailed description. He went up to the top of the lighthouse and dangled down a piece of string and then measured off in fathoms, and the fathom how high the forest was. And a fathom is just, of course, the distance between your two fingers when your arms are stretched out. It's ideal for measuring things with bits of strength. He also measured other parts with paces, with cubits, which is the distance from your, the tip of your fingers to your elbow. He also used hand spans, which is the distance from your uh, little finger to your thumb when you hold out your thing. And he used some other mysterious measures, which we don't quite know what, but they're probably a thumb. So he gave extraordinarily detailed description of the pharos at that point. And his description is the one that most people use when they're reconstructing the image of the pharos. So it has three floors, has three stories. The bottom part is the same part which was there for the Roman period and the same, the Ptolemaic one. So it's the original part, but we now know its exact dimensions. And on top of that, there was an octagonal section, which was about half the height of the base and about half the diameter. And another traveler says it made of brick. It's unclear as to whether it really was made of brick at that point or whether it was... I think it was probably covered with stucco again. And then there is a third story, which is circular. And again, half the height of the story beneath it and about half the diameter. And then on top, there was a mosque. And the mosque was quite small. It was not a mosque which you could probably have more than about half a dozen people in. 
It was under a dome, and I think it may have been reserved for very important people or some special occasion, but it definitely wasn't something where the, the public rushed in in huge numbers. So it just simply wasn't big enough. But his description, as say, is extremely accurate, and people fall into the trap that they search for the definitive description, and they find the one which is the most detailed. And they say, it always looked like that, because this guy describes it so well. Whereas he was describing what he saw in 1165. It wasn't what it had been previously. So it's not as it would have been described by, say, someone like Philo of Byzantium or one of those scholars working in Alexandria several centuries earlier. That is interesting. I have no idea that the modern reconstructions, many of them, are based on that later Islamic Yes, very often one sees them, in fact, with the Islamic pharos, but painted into a Ptolemaic setting with a Ptolemaic city beside it. Yeah, the Ptolemies would not be happy with that, I don't think, if they saw it today. Well, I mean, so we have this beautiful, this incredibly detailed description of the pharos in Islamic times, in the medieval period. Do we have archaeological remains of this last pharos too to really support it? Yes, we do. When the pharos collapsed, it collapsed into the uh, harbour The remains of it still exist to this day, in fact. But we can exactly, or almost exactly, date the collapse of the pharos from another visitor, from uh, Ibn um, Battuta, who was another Islamic visitor from Tangiers, in this case. And he is probably the greatest traveler of the medieval period. Really? And uh, he traveled an extraordinary distance as far as India and China. And he describes the pharos on the way out for his trip, and he describes it on the way back. And when he's going out, the pharos is still existent. It's standing. It's not in particularly good condition, but it is definitely standing. It's, there's no doubt about it. And when he comes back 20 years later, it's collapsed. So we know it's somewhere in that 20-year period, because people don't tend to record when things disappear, they tend to record when they appear. Mm. <laughs> Do we know why it collapsed? Well, that's an interesting story. Although the overall geological history of this region is uplift over the last million years of about 120 meters, in fact, since Ptolemaic times, the ground has gone down about seven meters. And the reason it's gone down is partly because of the sediments, loss of water from the sediments. And it's partly probably deeper things related to the uh, movement of the Nile Delta, essentially the weight being pushed down on the Nile Delta of, of extra sediments. So we can date more or less when this happened, and a lot of it happened in the 8th or 9th century. So once the land goes down, or the sea level goes up, it's exactly the same thing, the sea starts to approach the forest itself. So initially, the sea's a long way away and the forest is unaffected by it. But as the land starts to sink, the sea begins to approach the forest. Now, the forest is built on essentially a layer of limestone, of this uh, shelly limestone. But beneath that shelly limestone is sand, unconsolidated sand, very easily eroded. So as the sea begins to rise, it starts to erode underneath the platform which supports the pharos. And there is descriptions of how they were fixing this problem as it was happening by dumping old columns in and things like that. Basically, any old rubbish to try and, 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 and reduce this erosion, but stopped doing it for some time. And it got more and more eroded 
until the limestone platform on which the forest collapsed with the forest itself, and the whole thing fell into the sea. So it was not related to an earthquake, which is what kind of you would have expected <laughs> in this part of the world. But no, it seems to have been just simply essentially a lack of maintenance. And one reason, of course, why there was a lack of maintenance was trade had fallen off. And in 1318, there was a famine, possibly produced by climate change, that distant volcanic eruptions, which created a period of very damp, cool weather. And it's thought that there was perhaps an outbreak of typhus at this time, which was related to the weather. So there was the Great Famine of 1318. And the other thing that happened, of course, was the Black Death. The Black Death happened while Batuta was away. And he basically came back to Alexandria at the peak of the Black Death. Yes. The origin of the Black Death, it's a bacterium plague. It's thought to have originated in Asia and uh, was originally a bacterium which was a parasite of gerbils. There was a failure of the rain. It's thought to be a failure of the rains in Central Asia. So the gerbils died and the fleas infected with this bacterium then moved on to other hosts. Some of the hosts were the animals which were used to transport goods along the Silk Road from China through to the West. So it was somewhat ironic that the Silk Road, which had enabled the travels of people like Batuta and had in fact done a tremendous increase in wealth, was also the same route along which the plague travelled. Michael, it's so interesting to retell the story of the Pharos today from its beginnings to its end in the 14th century, around the time, as you say, of the Black Death. And also, you so say, you have the archaeological remains still visible. Yes. Underwater, like the island itself, climate changes. That island, which it was based on, the foundations, that ridge, is that now also completely underwater? No, it, the higher parts of it are still existent. And when the Pharos collapsed into, into, the, into the sea... There was a lot of rock of the blocks were still above water and they were recycled into building a fort, which is still there, called the Cape Bay Fort. And a lot of people say oh, the, that fort was built on the foundations of the, of the Faros. But this can't be so and anybody, nobody would ever build on foundations because they collapse into the ocean. But also, you've, to build foundations, you've obviously got to build it beside the pile of rubble, not on the pile of rubble. And the fort had been renovated a number of times. Napoleon renovated it, in fact, when he invaded Egypt. And then in 1939, they built another breakwater to protect the fault. And the breakwater was right across the remains of the Pharos on the harbour floor. But it wasn't until the 1990s when a second breakwater was built. In fact, huge concrete blocks were sunk and over the top of the remains of the Pharos. And at that point, the basically the, the archaeological community and, and citizens, I think, of Alexandria were horrified by this. And at that point, the underwater excavation started. Uh, but it was only essentially being forced by essentially the abuse of the site by uh, these concrete blocks. And there you go. And that underwater archaeology story of Alexandria with the lighthouse and so much more, they're going to continue to learn more in the years ahead. So that's really exciting for the story oh. of this wonder. It keeps going on. It does indeed. Yes, yes. It continues on. Well, Michael, this has been an absolutely fascinating chat. I'm going to wrap it up now. But lastly, you have written a book 
about the Pharos, but also the other wonders of the ancient world, it is called. It is called Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Science, Technology and Engineering. Well, Michael, it only goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Well, there you go. There was Professor Michael Higgins talking all things the Lighthouse of Alexandria, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, last things for me, you know what I'm going to say, but if you have been enjoying the ancients recently and you want to help us out where you know what you can do, you can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. It really does help as we continue our infinite mission to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. Now, whilst you're there, why not check out our new artwork? It looks incredible. Kudos to the whole Ancients team, to Elena, to Annie, to Rabia, who created the art, and of course, to our main editor, Aidan, in helping create this amazing new artwork. So check that out whilst you're there. See if you know what each of the little images represents and where from the ancient world they're from. That's my little challenge to you. But that's enough from me. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.